Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Get Into It podcast. My name is Tamia. This is Raina, and let's get into it. So today we have a very, very special guest, one of my former professors, and I will just be giving a brief biography on him before he introduces himself. Um, today we have Professor Glenn Kirshner, known as Prof K for his GW students, um, but Professor Kay is a former federal prosecutor with 30 years of trial experience. He served in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia for 24 years, rising to the position of the chief of chief of the homicide section. In that capacity, Glenn has supervised 30 homicide prosecutors and oversaw all homicide grand jury investigations and prosecutions in Washington, D.C. Um, and that's just a little bit of his background. And we're just going to let him reintroduce himself yes. for the audience. Professor Kay, if you could give the audience a deep dive on your background and who you are. Sure. Um, uh, I'm happy to be with you all this morning. Um, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version, the abbreviated version. Um, born in Brooklyn, grew up in Jersey. I call myself a, a kid. My call myself a gutter kid from Jersey. And I, I am not making that up. My pop was a high school football coach all over New Jersey. My mom sold real estate. Um, I graduated from Point Pleasant Borough High School on the Jersey Shore in 79. Went to Washington and Lee University undergrad. I was a journalism major. And then I went on to law school at New England Law up in Boston. And because I was uh, ROTC, I was actually on an army scholarship that helped pay for my college education, which was great because my folks didn't have a lot of money. Um, I owed four years of active duty service to the army. So what I did was I put myself through law school on an educational deferment of that active duty obligation. And then after I graduated law school, passed the New Jersey bar, then I attended the army JAG school, which is where lawyers go to learn how to become army lawyers. Uh, the JAG school is on the campus of the University of Virginia down in Charlottesville. So I spent about half a, half a year there. And then my first assignment as an Army JAG was at, at Fort Richardson, Alaska, up in Anchorage, Alaska. And that was a, a real adventure, beautiful part of the country, very cold. Um, and I spent about three years there as a trial court prosecutor. So I started prosecuting back in the 80s. Um, I handled court martial prosecutions, a wide range of cases. Soldiers tended to get in a little bit of criminal trouble. I mean, they were serving their country, but like in all other segments of society, we had our share of soldiers who would go out and commit crimes. So we would prosecute them uh, at court-martial. My second assignment after that was at the Army's Government Appellate Division in Falls Church, Virginia, where I was basically a, a prosecutor in the appellate courts. So soldiers would get convicted, they would appeal their convictions, and then I would be the appellant, appellate attorney or the appellate prosecutor that would then defend those convictions on appeal. And I got to handle some really interesting cases, including espionage and um, capital death penalty litigation. And I did that for about three and a half years. And then I decided to leave the army because after, after about six or seven years on active duty, you tend to get promoted out of the courtroom. And I would have spent the rest of my time as an army JAG supervising other JAGs. And I was not prepared to leave the courtroom. Looking back through my 30 year career, I never left the courtroom. So I transitioned from the army to the United States Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia. I was really fortunate that the US attorney at the time, Eric Holder, who went on to have that little job as uh, President Obama's attorney general for eight years, uh, Eric gave me a chance to be a federal prosecutor. He hired me. And um, I spent 24 years at the DC US Attorney's Office. The other really wonderful experience I had is I decided after a few years as a federal prosecutor and the US Attorney's Office in DC is part of the Department of Justice. In fact, the Department of Justice is the main headquarters, kind of like the Pentagon is the main headquarters for the military. And then you have military posts and bases all over the United States and around the world. Well the Department of Justice is like the main headquarters. And then you have 94 US attorney's offices all around the world where we do the actual prosecuting out in the States. So um, I decided that I wanted to try to join the homicide section at the US attorney's office. The chief of homicide at the time was a guy named Bob Mueller, 
who went on to be the director of the FBI. He went on to be special counsel for the Trump Russia investigation. So I was really lucky because I got hired by Eric Holder and I got to learn from him. And then I came into the homicide section and I got to learn how to be a federal homicide prosecutor from Bob Mueller. I also got to learn how to run the homicide section from Bob because a few years after he left, I took over as chief of homicide. So at that point, I was responsible for supervising 30 federal homicide prosecutors and overseeing all investigations involving murder in the District of Columbia, grand jury investigations, prosecutions, sentencing hearings. So, and I continued to try cases as chief. I never left the courtroom. Um, so after a little over 30 years with the federal government overall, that's when I decided to retire. I retired on June 1st of 2018. And um, I had met some folks at MSNBC. They asked me if I wanted to take a shot at running my mouth on TV. So I retired on June 1st. On June 2nd, MSNBC put me on a train at, from Union Station to New York City. And I went to 30, 30 Rockefeller Center where MSNBC and NBC News has its headquarters. And they threw me on air nine times in three days. And it was either sink or swim. And I think I probably took on some water, but I managed to, to swim and they signed me to a contract. So I've been an MSNBC legal analyst ever since. Um, and then I do another, I have a number of other day jobs. Um, I teach at George Washington University. I have the privilege of teaching about 50 criminal justice students undergrad each semester. And I've been doing that for a couple of years now. Um, I also run my own YouTube channel called Justice Matters with Glenn Kirshner where I post a legal analyst or legal analysis video every single day, seven days a week, trying to keep people abreast of what's going on, mainly inside our federal government, because we have suffered through unprecedented crime, corruption, governmental abuse over the last four years. Fortunately, we have turned the page and we're now moving into the Biden-Harris era where President Biden and, and Vice President Harris are trying to fix everything that the past administration broke. And they have their hands full, we wish them well. As you know, our country is still struggling with the recent insurrection at the US Capitol. My friends and former colleagues at the DC US Attorney's Office are investigating that full bore day and night. So I'm hoping we can move toward justice for that attack against our democracy. So. That is not quite the abbreviated version of my background that I was intending to give, but that's kind of, uh, that's a little bit about me. Wow. And you have a lot of great experience and that's why Rain and I were so excited to have you on the podcast because we know you're going to have a lot of great knowledge and wisdom for us. So one of our first questions for you would be, um, what made you want to switch to trying homicides? Like what made you want to become a prosecutor that deals with these heinous crimes? So homicide is the mother of all crimes. You know, I, I never wanted to insult my colleagues at the U.S. Attorney's Office who worked fraud and public corruption cases or who worked in our appellate division or who worked in the administrative offices or who worked in our national security section. All of that is really important. But death is different. And the Supreme Court has said just that death is different, although they say it in the context of death penalty litigation. So I wanted to try to help families who lost a loved one to violent crime through the impossibly difficult um, circumstances that they find themselves in. One, when they unexpectedly lose a loved one. I mean, if your son or daughter or your spouse or your sibling doesn't come home unexpectedly one day, because they're taken by violent crime, your life and your family are never the same. And you are then on top of that loss, you are then injected into the crazy Byzantine world of police investigations, grand jury proceedings, prosecution, sentencing hearings. And you know families find it sometimes impossible to navigate their way through life without their loved one, plus everything that they are now having to contend with beyond their grief and beyond trying to figure out how their family moves forward. 
they're in police investigations and court proceedings. So I always wanted to be the point person for those families. And, um, and I got to do that for 22 years. And I can tell you, I have hundreds and hundreds of homicide families that still sort of reside in my heart. It's what prompted me to start a nonprofit organization called Homicide Family Advocates to try to help, help volunteer to work with homicide families um, and help them through that impossibly difficult process. So as I started my work as a prosecutor in the 80s, I kind of realized that homicide was where I wanted to try to focus my attention. And, and you know, not only that, but I love helping the families and I love trying cases. There is nothing as exciting, as gratifying, as challenging for a lawyer than going in and trying cases, prosecuting cases, particularly murder cases, because the stakes are really high. There's a lot riding on the outcome of a murder prosecution for the family, for the community, for the defendant, for the defendant's family. So uh, it was just, it all just sort of came together for me. And that's why I ended up doing a couple of decades as a homicide prosecutor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, I think, you know, kind of like in our, I think in our generation, especially, you know, given the, the unprecedented, like, you know, forms of racial reckoning and racial injustice and all of those types of matters, like, you know, I think people oftentimes like lump prosecutors into a monolith of like, okay, well, they're just working with the cops and they're this and they're that. And I kind of want to explore that idea. Mm -hmm. um, like, obviously you just explained here for like the past like 10-ish minutes of the important work that you're doing and like helping families and doing like honorable work. And, you know, you're in the section where you're dealing with violent crime and heinous crimes and crimes that need to be punished for like there there needs to be a level of deterrence like you can't like you know that has to happen um but what what about you know the 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 crimes that aren't violent like you know we have thousands and thousands of people that are sitting in jail for non-violent offenses or petty theft drug crimes and, you know, kind of like separating that from violent crime, like let's, let's put violent crime, like, I guess, like in a separate category right now, like, can you kind of like talk to us a little bit about like, what, what do we do with those folks who are probably getting, you know, disproportionately punished or prosecuted for, for kind of like reactions to their social conditions? And this is a very, very general statement, um, mm -hmm. but it's kind of that nature. Sure. So, um, you know, I, I hate to go right to the word decarceration, mm -hmm. but as a prosecutor for 30 years, you know, part of the, um, I, I don't want to say luxury, but part of what made my job much easier when it came to um, being responsible for ultimately incarcerating people, if they were convicted, was that I was dealing with murder. And I was helping families in DC. The defendants were almost exclusively African-American and the victims and their families and the communities that I was trying to help and protect were almost exclusively African-American. Um, so, you know, decarceration is almost like a buzzword, but I am a big believer in decarceration, not for people who pose a risk of deadly violence to the community, not for the people who violently took loved ones from their family, but they only account for a very small yeah. percentage of the people populating our mm -hmm. prisons. And I believe we have to decarcerate. One of the most important ways that, and there is systemic racism in the system. There's just no two ways about it. I don't believe the system is populated by a majority of people who are like, I want to get people of color and I don't care. That's my goal. That's not my experience. We had more than 300 prosecutors at the DC US Attorney's Office, and I don't think any of them had that attitude. The problem is there are, there are ways that racism creeps into a system that is not intentional, right? The, the decisions that people make about bail, about pretrial release versus pretrial detention, that takes into account 
um, the, who the defendant is. Is the defendant poor? Is the defendant a person of color? Is the defendant on the flip side, connected, powerful, influential, rich, white? Um, and I don't even know that a lot of people consciously take those things into account, but I do know those things get taken into account often by people and in all the wrong ways, and it leads to the larger problem. Here's one of the biggest ways I think we can help attack the over-incarceration of not only people of color, but of people generally, because we can't incarcerate our way out of our crime problem in this country. If we could, we would be the safest country on the planet because look at how many people we incarcerate. At some point you have to say, okay, we've incarcerated millions and millions of people and the crime rate tends to go up. So maybe incarcerating millions and millions of people is not the answer. Actually, it's the problem. What we do is we take people on the front end who get locked up. And let's now talk about everybody other than murderers and rapists and you know gang members, like the worst of the worst and the most violent, because they make up a small percentage of the people we prosecute. A large percentage is made up by relatively low level chronic offenses that are either drug driven, addiction driven, mental health driven, poverty driven, homelessness driven. That's the majority of crime that we contend with day to day. And as a quick aside, even though I'm a I was a federal prosecutor all my life in DC, we were the federal prosecutors and the local prosecutors because the District of Columbia does not have a district attorney's office. It's not a state, it's a federal city. So we, the federal prosecutors do it all. So we would act like, you know, if we were in Philadelphia, we would, we would be the federal prosecutors at the Philadelphia US Attorney's Office, and we would be the local district attorney prosecutors in the Philly DA's office. We did it all, which makes for a really exciting, varied, vibrant prosecutorial practice. But as a result, I've seen it all. So I can talk in DA terms or state's attorney terms if you're in Maryland or Commonwealth's attorney's terms if you're in Virginia, just as I can talk about the more traditional federal prosecutor work. So what we do is we take all of these low level chronic offenders. We ignore the mental health concerns that put them in the position to to, to engage in these low level crimes repeatedly. We don't take into concern their economic status. We don't take into concern their addiction challenges. We don't take into concern their homelessness. All we do is we say, oh, theft from vehicle. You broke into a car. We're gonna give you a charge and we're gonna run you through the system. And then we're gonna spit you out on the other end we're not going to help with any reentry programs, but if you violate your conditions of probation, we will put you back in. And there's a great court pilot project by Judge Reggie Walton in district court in DC, federal district court called reentry court. And we, we can talk about that because it's really exciting and it's changing the paradigm. It's changing the approach to probation, parole, and supervision in a great, great mm -hmm. way. But let's go back to the front end. We don't address all of these issues that really are what led somebody to commit that low level offense. We run them through the system, we spit them out on the other end, less capable. And let me tell you, when you put somebody in the DC jail where, we, where people can serve short misdemeanor sentences as opposed to longer sentences where you're gonna go out into the feds, when you put somebody in the DC jail, if they don't have mental health challenges going in, they're gonna have mental health challenges going out. They're gonna have PTSD. They're gonna have all kinds of additional problems as a result of their period of incarceration at the DC jail. I've been in jails and prisons all around the country. DC jail is a rough place. Mm. They do the best they can with the resources they have to run it safely. But so all we're doing is cycling people through the criminal justice system and making matters worse. Right? When you spit them out worse on the other end, 
They're going to go back to the street. They're going to engage in more crime. You run, the through, run them through the system without getting the mental health help they need, the addiction help they need, they need the economic help they need, the homelessness help they need. And, and it's a downward spiral that we, in a very real sense, the government creates. So if we pay more attention on the front end to the majority of offenders who are chronic offenders engaged in low level crimes driven by mental health and addiction and poverty and homelessness and put a little bit of time, effort, energy and resources into dealing with those problems on the front end and letting them avoid being put in the DC jail and spit out worse on the other end, then it's a win-win. It's actually a win-win-win. It's a win for the person that you are helping rather than just cycling them through the system. It's a win for their family. It's a win for the community because you know maybe you're helping create a more productive member of the community on the front end and you're avoiding people reoffending on the back end and it's a win for the taxpayer. And here's the part that I don't think people appreciate and I know politicians don't wanna run on this platform. If you put more money, that's all what it boils down to for politicians. I have never been and will never be a politician. It always boils down to money and power and getting elected and getting reelected. So if you put more money into programs that are designed to help people on the front end rather than just cycle them through the prisons, it's the, the politicians don't like to go out and campaign on being soft on crime. Mm -hmm. Because there's a misperception that helping people up front with diversionary programs, right? Avoiding catching a criminal case, avoiding jail, avoiding prison, and helping them with resources that they need to, to break out of the cycle of petty crime, you know, jail time, spit out, petty crime, jail time, spit out on the other end. No politician wants to say, this is how I want to spend your tax dollars, helping the criminals, helping the people mm -hmm. who are chronically getting locked up. Why? Because the politicians think that sounds like they're being soft on crime. They want to run on being tough on crime. Mm -hmm. Your community's unsafe, so I'm going to put more people in prison. Well, that's just a stupid position to take because it's a failed position. It's demonstrably been a failure. We haven't incarcerated our way out of our problems and we can't incarcerate our way out of our problems. So if you put the money in, the resources in on the front end, you're not being soft on crime. You're being smart on crime. And most importantly, you're just kind of helping people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And not all politicians want to help people. Mm. Some politicians will climb over their dying grandmother to get reelected. Right. So that is a very long winded overview of how I think we can and should help people on the front end, not because we want to be soft on crime, but because it makes sense from every perspective to help people on the front end rather than mindlessly cycling them through a system that will spit them out worse mm -hmm. on the back end. Wow. And I was just going to say, you mentioned um, Judge Reggie Walton, his reentry program. I would love to touch on that a little more. I, I immediately looked it up as soon as you said it, because I feel like it's something that we should probably talk about and get a little more info on. Because like you said, um, there's not really a focus on like, okay, now this person is reentered back into society. How are we going to help them outside of just imprisoning them, you know, yeah. and prosecuting them for their whatever crime it was? So most people know Judge Reggie Walton these days for the cases that he presided over that had to do with Donald Trump and Bill Barr and the Mueller report, because Judge Reggie Walton is the one who issued a very long, thoughtful opinion saying Attorney General Bill Barr misled the American people by mischaracterizing the Mueller report in his attempts to protect Donald Trump from being held accountable for his crimes and transgressions. And I have talked about Judge Walton's order 
in that case and in that respect over and over and over again. But here's what people don't know about Judge Reggie Walton. First of all, he was a prosecutor in my former office, I think in the 70s. He was first appointed as a Superior Court judge by President Ronald Reagan, Superior Court judge in DC, that's the local court. He was then reappointed by George H.W. Bush, that was the father. He was then appointed as a federal court judge for the first time by George W. Bush, the son. He was then made the head of the FISA court, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act court by Chief Justice Roberts of the Supreme Court who designates the FISA court judges. So, you know, I always used to say, the one thing nobody can ever say about Reggie Walton is that he, he's an angry Democrat. I mean, he has been appointed across the board by Republican presidents. Mm -hmm. And not that I wanna talk about politics, but he is the kind of man who is respected on both sides of the aisle, by Republicans and by Democrats. And he was a, a, a judge handling murder cases in DC when I first started appearing before him in the 90s trying murder cases. Then more recently, when he began this re-entry court project, I called him up and I said, can I sit down with you, Judge, and you can just tell me what re-entry court is all about because what I'm learning about it makes me really excited that it could represent a sea change in the way the criminal justice system deals mm -hmm. with inmates, ex-offenders who have served their time and they're now re-entering society but they are still under the control and responsible mm -hmm. to a judge, sometimes for years on probation, parole, or supervised release, which is what they call probation in the federal system. So Judge Walton graciously um, had you know, explained all about the pilot project reentry court. I went to court before COVID hit, sat there and watched reentry court in action and was inspired and so I'm involved in some projects and some efforts to, to try to bring this new approach to a broader audience in hopes that it will start to take hold nationwide, not just federally, but because federally, we only do this many cases. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the number is, but it's probably 2%, 5% the criminal prosecutions in the country get handled in federal court. They all get handled in state, county, and local courts, right? So that's where we need to get the word out. So reentry court is revolutionary because usually when somebody serves their time and now they are on supervision and they are responsible to a judge, usually what that looks like is the judge sets conditions for probation, for supervised release. You got to get a job. You got to get mental health counseling. You got to get... Um, anger management classes. You got to get, you know, your GED if you don't have it. You've got to pay your court fines. You've got to pay restitution. You've got to not get rearrested. You got to, you know, you got to do this. You got to do that. And if you step out of line, you're going back in. Mm -hmm. Overstating that a little bit for effect, but that's kind of what supervision looks like when you're an ex-offender who's just now getting out trying to succeed in the community. It's pretty daunting intimidating. So Judge Walton said, no, we're going to change the paradigm. Instead, we're going to bring you in periodically, like a couple of times a month, we're going to have you come from wherever you're, you're living into court, not because you violated a condition of release, but because we are going to marshal our energies and our resources to help you succeed. So what he did is this pilot program involves consolidating a whole bunch of folks. And there is a process by which they try to figure out what offenders should be part of this program. And they, you know, Judge Walton is like, no, I'm just not taking the easiest folk. I want to take the toughest folk, the most dangerous folk, the folk who have had chronic contacts with the criminal justice system because he wasn't looking to set this thing up for false success. He really wanted to see if he could make it work for everybody, for all of the ex-offenders. And then they all agree 
to whoever represented them during their case, whether it was a trial or a guilty plea or whatever, before they went in to serve their sentence, they had to let that lawyer go. And, and he consolidated all of them with one lawyer. And her name is Shelly Peterson. And I've known her for years. And she is fabulous. One, she's a public, federal public defender. And she's fabulous. The public defender service in DC is so good. People, that's not true all around the country. It's true in DC. The local public defender service in DC Superior Court, the federal public defender service in federal district court in DC, they are top notch. I get locked up. That's who I want representing me. I'm not going out and getting some paid lawyer. I mean, these people are good. And Shelly is terrific. So as the defense attorney for all of these ex-offenders, she gets to bring to bear kind of everything that the system has put together to try to help ex-offenders, all kinds of resources and programs and job leads and housing leads. And so, and, but that's kind of the job of the defense attorney, right? Is to, to the extent you can help your client, but here's what else Judge Walton has done. Every single one of these, let's call them probationers, they all get their supervision consolidated with one probation officer who's also on the team, right? Team ex-offender. I made that up. I don't know if they have a team name, but that probation officer, that federal probation officer similarly, similarly is there to help the ex-offenders with all of those programs, all of those resources, not just I want you to take your urinalysis twice a week. And if you test positive, I'm going to notify the court and we're going to step you back. It's more about, no, we are now marshalling our resources to help you succeed. And then when I'm sitting in court watching this, Judge Walton meets with each one um, once or twice a month, and he knows everything about them. It's like, you know what? I know when you were in here, you were going to be moving in with your girlfriend, right? And I, when you were last in court, you were talking to me about that. And you said you had some concerns because you and your girlfriend hadn't gotten, always gotten along that well before you went in to serve mm -hmm. your sentence. Talk to me about how that's going. And talk to me about whether maybe there's some services, maybe there's some counseling, maybe there's some program out there that can help you and your mm -hmm. girlfriend get some counseling together. If that might help you keep the relationship intact, move forward so you can have a more stable living environment. And then, and tell me about your job. You had just started, you've been about a month, you've been doing this kind of work. Tell me how that's been going. You getting regular paychecks? Are you getting 40 hours a week? You... And so I'm sitting there and I'm watching something unfold that I've never seen in court before. Mm -hmm. The whole system, the defense attorney, the federal probation officer, the judge, all coming together as part of a team to help an ex-offender succeed on supervision. I still get like just as goosebumps when I talk about it. This is, this is not the way people see the criminal justice system. It's all about the hammer. It's all about the punishment and the threat and the intimidation. You know, no, it's all about the help. And if we can start to break out it, not always, when you're facing a murder trial, we, we're not all looking to help you up front. We're looking to hold you accountable for killing somebody. Mm -hmm. But it's very different on the back end because now you've served your sentence. You've paid your debt. And now why wouldn't we try to help you succeed? Because if you fail, again, we're back to the lose, lose, lose. Lose for you, lose for the family, lose for the community because you may go out and reoffend. Now we got more victims and lose for the taxpayer because put a little bit of time, money and resources into helping people succeed. And that's gonna be a whole lot cheaper than having them reoffend and expensively running them through the system again. Mm -hmm. These are not, you know, listen, like when I say I'm a gutter kid from Jersey, I'm no social scientist, I'm no deep thinker. All of this just makes perfect sense and it makes human sense. I mean, we're helping people for God's sake. And if you don't wanna help people, then get out of the criminal justice business mm -hmm. period i mean like yeah you kind of like touched on i think a lot of the things that we were literally going to ask you mm -hmm. 
Um, but I, I kind of want to backpedal a little bit to the point that you made just like earlier, where you said that most of the homicide cases that you were prosecuting were involving people of color as the victims. And I think that there's like this, the way that the media portrays crime, it's as people of color, specifically black men as the criminal. So a lot of people don't see the, that like violent crime disproportionately affects people of color, especially black people. And I think, you know, that narrative, that twisted narrative of like black criminality and all of that ideas is also just like persisting throughout the system. And like, you know, like the people just don't have conversations like these. They just see these sound bites and these media bites and just think that they under, like they think black people are criminals and yeah. blank, blank, blank. Like that's just how, that's just how it is. And I kind of like, I guess that kind of segues um, me into this question. Like everything that you just said, is in an, in an attempt to, you know, make the criminal justice system like a rehabilitation model. And even though like, you know, we pride ourselves being, oh, like it's equal justice under the law. We all know that's not true. We all know that in practice, that doesn't really happen. And that, you know, when people are going into the system, they're more likely to come out reoffending, wh whether that's the same crime or a different crime, because you were effectively making essentially citizens that go through the criminal justice system, second-class citizens, they become felons, they can't vote, they can't get food stamps, they can't get public housing, they can't, it, it's just like, like it makes perfect sense to the three of us because we're talking about it, mm -hmm. but like for so many others, it's like this just this blanket argument. So I guess um, my, my next question is, I was reading um, Kamala Harris's biography and she said in her biography, like obviously, vice president was a former prosecutor, DA, attorney general, senator, like that was her whole progression. And she said in her, um, in her biography that prosecutors represent the people, like the person, the individual. I was taught in my first criminal justice class at GW that prosecutors represent the state, which gives them a high level of prosecu prosecutorial discretion and a whole bunch of resources at their disposal, which ultimately sometimes counters counters like you know the like perpetuates systems of inequality so I guess kind of like and she also says like she prides herself in being a progressive prosecutor like how do you feel about those issues given your experience like is there such thing as a progressive prosecutor do prosecutors represent the state or do they represent the person like what's that dynamic I guess there's systemic terms systematic terms and like what actually happens in reality if you could kind of, I guess, elaborate. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, you know, prosecutors are not monolithic either. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we take, we come in all different shapes and sizes and flavors and backgrounds and, um, and priorities. Um, and, you know, I'll tell you, when I was chief of homicide, if, if you were not doing the right thing, um, I'm going to find a way to kick you out of the homicide section. And I did with some people. So, you know, the, as in any large organization, you're going to have the good, the bad, and the ugly. You're going to have the bad apples. And it's our job to, to weed them out. Um, and in fact, yes, I worked day in and day out with police, but I also prosecuted police officers, including when I caught some lying in one of my homicide cases to try to tell witnesses to finger somebody whether or not they could do it legitimately because, and I quote, this is the detective, you are not going to F up, F up my 100% closure rate. Mm. And we prosecuted two of those detectives in federal court. So it's our job to do the right thing under all circumstances. Does every prosecutor do the right thing under all circumstances? Nope. And if so, because if they did, we wouldn't have any abuse in the system. So the prosecutors represent, we don't represent the victim. We don't represent a particular person mm -hmm. in any case. We represent the people of the jurisdiction that we are serving in. So it gets tricky with the federal prosecutors. Literally, we represent the United States. When I stood up in court every day, I said, good morning, Your Honor, Glenn Kirshner on behalf of the United States. Mm. So we represent the people of the nation. If you're a state prosecutor, you represent the people of the state. So, you know, represent is maybe not the best word because mm -hmm. you don't enter into an attorney client, a representational relationship with any person. We are 
the people's representative, right? Kind of like the people will vote for their member of Congress. Mm-hmm. And that Congress person is the representative of the people. We take on the responsibility of being a pros- prosecutor. We are the representative of the people in criminal cases, investigations and prosecutions. So that's kind of, I always saw, and more specifically, because we did all of the local prosecuting in DC, not just the federal prosecuting, I always said, you know, I feel a lot more like a district attorney for the Mm -hmm. people of DC Mm -hmm. than I feel like I'm representing the people of the United States, even though officially that was my job, my title and my responsibility. Mm. And when you talk about, can I go back, Raina, to what you said when you started the question, you know, when people get this soundbite view of the system and, you know, it, 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 makes it seem like, okay, so African-American defendants mm-hmm. are the problem. And that's really, and I had a, a standard response to people who would ask me, you know, at, at a bar or whatever, they knew I was a prosecutor. I might talk about a particular case I had. And, you know, there's a lot of racism out there. There's a lot of racism out there. And I think we saw it most vividly in the last few years when yeah. we had a president gave he gave it permission to run wild. But I would have somebody ask me as I was talking about a case, is the defendant a black guy? Mm. And I would, mm. I would always answer them the same way. It still gets my blood pressure up. I would say the victim was an African-American. The victim's family was African-American. My detective is African. The judge who presided over my case was African American. But you don't ask me any of those questions, mm-hmm. right? You just ask me if the criminal is a black guy. Why? And that's usually when people would move on or move <laughs> away from that topic of the conversation. And that was my way of demonstrating hey, you know what, sport, you got an issue you know, and maybe you need to rethink your frame of reference because Raina, as you say, people get a sound bite, they look at statistics or they look at the defendants who might populate an inner city court system mm-hmm. and draw the wrong conclusion from that. Um, so that was my way to try to tackle a question that I got all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And kind of to do not a not a hard switch or flip, but um, you had mentioned that you are now a legal analyst for MSNBC and you were kind of thrown into it in kind of a sink or swim situation, <laughs> like you said. But um, our next question for you is basically how did your legal history and career affect your perspective now that you are a legal analyst for MSNBC? And do you ever find yourself going back and analyzing your own career in actions as a prosecutor? Um, I, I do. I look back at the way I conducted myself as a prosecutor for 30 years. And, um, you know, it, I always saw my job and I've said, I said this for the entire 30 years, I was a prosecutor. I gave a lot of training classes and lectures and whatnot to police, to the FBI, to civic organizations, to schools. You know, we had a mentor program, so I got to talk to elementary school kids. Um, And I always said the same thing, which is that as prosecutors, our most important job is to protect the rights of the defendant. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. people don't think that way when it comes to their perception of prosecutors. They're like, ah, you just want to lock everybody up. You just want notches in your belt. You just want a hundred percent win rate. You just... And I said, yeah, some prosecutors probably, and those are the ones we try to either not hire in the first instance or push out if we find that they're not well-suited to be prosecutors, but it's to protect the rights of the defendant. And what I mean by that is I don't represent the defendant. I don't Mm -hmm. zealously advocate for the defendant. That's the defense attorney's job. But I protect the rights of the defendant by making sure my police officers, my investigators, my agents, my detectives didn't do anything wrong in the investigation, didn't violate any laws, didn't violate any police policies or protocols, and most importantly, didn't violate the constitutional right of the defendant. Because if they did, 
I had to investigate it. I had to disclose it to the defense counsel and to the court. And then sometimes I had to take my own remedial action. If it was egregious enough, we would bring charges against the police officer. If it wasn't that egregious, but it, but it worked to the prejudice of the defendant's right to a fair trial, I dismissed cases. I dismissed murder cases based on the fact that law enforcement officers had violated a defendant's constitutional rights. Does that, did that make me happy? You know, happy is a relative term. It made me, it made me feel bad for the victim of the crime mm -hmm. that will now go unaddressed. The victim's family made me feel bad for the community because sometimes we would dismiss a murder case or a violent crime case or a drug case and that person would go out and reoffend, mm -hmm. right? But I guess if I had to, if I had to assign, you know, a word to it, it, it made me feel just, it made me feel fair. It made me feel honorable, even if it didn't make me feel happy because I knew that there was societal harm that would flow from it. It still made me feel good mm -hmm. that I was in the system fighting from the inside to do right by the defendant. The other thing I did, and listen, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. I don't think I'm unusual in this regard because I worked with hundreds and hundreds of prosecutors and most of them were like this, which is what gives me confidence in the system. But I know my view of the system is basically probably a thousand prosecutors over the course of my 30 years that I got to know and work with closely, all of whom kind of shared these views. It's, I know it's not that way in local jurisdictions around the country. I know there are rampant abuses, not, and not just in the South, but there are rampant abuses throughout the country in the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. But this is the way it should work. So, so the other thing I did, which I don't think all prosecutors did, I know all prosecutors didn't do, when I prosecuted a murder case, obviously I got to know the victim's family really well, really well. And, but the first opportunity when I was in court, whether it was at a preliminary hearing or a pretrial motions hearing or at the trial proper, I would ask the defense attorney if the, vic if the, if the defendant's family would allow me to introduce myself and would be willing to sit in the witness room for a few minutes so that I could answer any questions that the defendant, the killer's family had for me as the prosecutor about the process or anything else that I might be able to answer. And I actually developed relationships, some stronger than others. Sometimes the family said, we're not interested. Most of the time they were interested most of the time they appreciated the opportunity to talk with the person who was prosecuting their son. And the first thing I would say is, you know, ma'am, sir, there are no winners here. And believe me, as somebody who raised five daughters I, and, and a stepson, it's like, I understand that, that you and your family are hurting. I understand you may lose your loved one to the system, even if only for a period of time. And of course the victim's family has lost their loved one forever. There are no winners here, mm -hmm. but we're gonna try to literally do right by your son by following all the rules and doing this in a fair way, fair to everybody, to your family and to the victim's family. And I am available to answer questions. And you know what happened? A lot of those families that I would develop relationships with, they were tomorrow's witnesses in a violent crime case. Mm -hmm. And they felt much more comfortable talking with me or talking with other prosecutors to try to do right by their community. So, you know, it can be an inclusive, empathetic system while you're all still honoring your respective roles as prosecutor, as defense counsel, as judge, as detective. And, you know, if, if we could all aspire to that, it would be a much more fair, balanced and effective and empathetic system of justice. And we can get there. We can get there if we can impress upon people the value in doing it this way. Now, if you, if you hate, if you get up in the morning to hate and look down on people 
because your life sucks. And the only thing that you got going for you is his life sucks more than my life sucks mm -hmm. because you're Hispanic and you're black and you're an immigrant and you're, you know, and some people love to hate. Hate, unfortunately, is a more powerful unifier and motivator than is love and compassion and concern and empathy. You know, you can't reach everybody, but you can keep trying. Mm. Mm. Yeah, honestly, I was I was going to ask a follow up question of um, like how how you think we could not we could, but like, you know, the, the relationship between the prosecutor and the police and, you know, the whole idea of police culture and blue wall of silence and how how does a prosecutor kind of navigate that space, um, knowing that a police could a police officer or detective could come to you with information that could be tainted or, you know, but you kind of like already addressed that. Um, so that, that was going to be my follow-up question, but I, I definitely do think that everything that you're saying here is kind of like, you know, I, I feel like we, we tend to view things in, in this generation, especially like now, like with the younger generation in like a monolithic sense, like we just categorize yeah. things as this is prosecutors are this judges are this like black people are this white people like you know it's just like that's that's just what we're just it's like group think like it's like we're all just like taking these sound bites and just like and like categorizing people and in, in professions into certain categories so I really appreciate that you have been debunking a lot of the things I think a lot of people are think about prosecutors in a streamlined um way but I guess my my last question would be definitely like a the 180 here, 360, 180. I don't even know which one it is. Um, 180. <laughs> I'm like, I don't even know. Um, for us now, now let's get to the to the, to the down down boiling of it. Okay, to me and I and a lot of people that listen to this podcast are aspiring lawyers. Yes, and you know, hearing your experience and hearing how you're, you know, actively, you know, doing doing good by so many people and motivating so many people, especially your students. Not only the people that like you've helped. Um, in your years of like legal prosecution, but like for, for us, like in, in like being your student has like, you know, a lot of motivation because you brought in a lot of experience to the table and we're really, that's why we're just so grateful to have you here today. But kind of like, you know, we're juniors in college. A lot mm -hmm. of the listeners are juniors in college besides my mom, my dad. <laughs> um, yeah, same. But yeah, but you know, now we're kind of like, you know, we're hearing all these different types of professions, prosecutors, public defenders, big law, like boutique law firms. And, you know, we have to take the LSAT first. So like how, if you have to give any advice to people who are in our position and we're seeing, you know, people like you and so many people that like we look up to in these huge professions and we're just like, okay, I want to get there, but I have to take this examination first. What, what yeah. advice would you give to people, especially, um, you know, aspiring lawyers of color and especially women, what, what advice would you give to us, you know, juniors in college? What, what should we be doing? What should we not be doing? Overthinking, not overthinking? Like how, how should we navigate that, that space right now as aspiring professionals in the legal field? Um, so I failed a lot in my life. And because of that, I learned a lot. And be, because of all of that, I succeed. One of my favorite sayings is the Michael Jordan saying that, you know, I was entrusted with a game winning shot, you know, 21 times, I forget the numbers in my career, and I missed, you know, and I failed, and I lost this many games, and I failed over and over and over again in my life. And that's why I succeed. So I would from the 30,000 foot um, perspective, I would say, try every experience, professional, every professional experience you can. Don't single track yourself, don't limit yourself, don't narrow yourself. When I was in law school, I, I, I kind of knew I wanted to be a prosecutor eventually when I took a trial advocacy class and I got to stand up on my feet and argue a case. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm kind of digging this. But I decided not to take a clinic because it would have meant I couldn't take like three other substantive classes, literally like, I don't know, secured transactions or wills, estates and trusts, or because I'm like, I wanna make sure I get as many broad varied experiences as I can. And that's not just academic, that's in, you know, if I can get some internship, if I can volunteer at this, you know, homeless shelter, or if I can, 
the more of that stuff you do spread yourself out experience wise, it's going to give you a base to make more informed decisions mm -hmm. as you move forward. And then as you begin to make your way in toward maybe what your profession should be, maybe what your real area of interest is. So I try everything at least once professionally and, and personally to the extent you're out there volunteering and you're meeting new people and you're tackling new challenges. And in, in all of that is really don't be afraid to fail. I was um, honored when I got to speak to last year's graduates at the sociology school at GW and do a little five minute thing. And I said, you know, you're not gonna get this advice at a lot of commencement ceremonies, but get out there and fail and fail and fail and fail because that, that you're taking on new challenges and you're learning from each failure. We don't like to fail. Mm -hmm. I learned from my failures in ways that I never learned from my successes. If I succeeded, I'm like, yeah, I got that. I'm good at that. And you know, I probably wasn't, maybe I was lucky. So I would say, spread yourself crazy thin getting new experiences and don't be afraid to fail and don't you're going to feel bad when you fail you're going to lick your wounds and you're going to complain to your friends and your family but that's okay because that's where we learn and that's where we grow when it comes to and i will tell you i used to teach a third year criminal law criminal justice seminar at gw law years ago and i did that for four years and i realized my next go round, which is this go round at GW, I didn't want to go back to the law school. It's mm -hmm. like, I want to, I want to get with the undergrads and I want to give them a real world perspective of the criminal justice system, arrest through appeal, not just to teach them what the system looks like, but hopefully to inspire them to fix the system in the, in the places it's broken and it's broken in a lot of places. And so we talk about that in class. And it's funny because at the end of one of the semesters, one of the students said, so I guess what we've taken away is that you really don't think we should go to law school. <laughs> and I said, I don't think I said that, but maybe that was one of the messages that I convey because we have a lot of lawyers. Mm. We probably have 50% too many lawyers. And as a result, it, when you talk about boutique firms or big firms, people end up fighting over pots of money as lawyers and they sometimes create legal work that really isn't even necessary. Yeah, it doesn't even need to Because they have to, you have to bill somebody every six minutes you're in private practice. The billable hour increment is down to six minutes. And if you're in a law firm and not every law firm is the same, but your partners are gonna be like, they're, they're gonna look at every six minute increment during the course of your 12 hour day at work and they're gonna make sure you're billing somebody. That, that creates problems. It creates abuses. It creates the kind of pressure on lawyers to, to beat the bushes for business that I don't think is healthy for the profession and I don't think it's healthy for human beings. One of the nice things about public service is I never billed anybody for anything and I never had to go out looking for business. Unfortunately, particularly on the, on the homicide front, business was always really good. We always had plenty to do. And if you're a public servant, it doesn't have to be prosecutor, it can be public defender. It can be uh, you know, government lawyers. There are so many government lawyers, 110,000 employees at the Department of Justice alone, right? They're not all lawyers, but a lot of them are. Um, public service is just different because it's never about the money. You'll be able to pay your bills, you'll put a roof over your head, but it's not about the money. It's about serving people doing right by people, you know, and you can do so much good and still earn a living. So I am a big fan of lawyers going into public service, even if only for a period of time. The other thing I'll tell you all is every single prosecutor I ever served with who went into private practice, and most of them did, not all of them were crazy enough to be in the courtroom for 30 years, because that's a challenge too. Every single one, said some version of the best job I ever had is when I was a prosecutor. And let me tell you about the 18,000 things I hate about being in private practice. I never had one say they love what they're doing in private practice. Some of them hated it more than others. 
But so I'm a big believer in public service. Let me, let me just touch on the LSATs. I bombed the LSATs. <laughs> I bombed the SATs. I am not a good standardized test taker. Now, when it came to having to study for and pass the bar exam after I graduated law school, that was a breeze because I had the material in front of me. I took a prep course and I'm like, okay, this is the substantive stuff I need to know. And I just spent three years learning about it in law school. And now I will say as a gutter kid from Jersey, I was always like, I'm gonna fail out as a lawyer. I got no business going to law school. Um, so I think I studied extra hard, but when, you, when I can study the material that I'm gonna be tested on, I'm good, I got this. I couldn't study the material for the LSATs or for the SATs because it's the standardized test stuff. And I mean, the SATs in particular, when you tell me that, you know, there are five houses on a street and the one with the blue door next to the one with the green shutter, you can't have the white doorknob. You can't, I'm like, I don't know. I don't, I don't live on that street. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I couldn't answer those, what deductive reasoning yeah. questions. I mean, that's just not me. So I say all that to say, if you don't do well on the LSATs, you're going to be fine. There are a thousand law schools out there. And frankly, one is not much different than the other. They're just not. And it doesn't matter where you went to school. I was on the hiring committee at the US Attorney's Office for 20 years. And I probably interviewed more applicants than any of my contemporaries because of all of those things we've been discussing. I really cared about who was coming to the US Attorney's Office and who was gonna have the power to work to imprison someone. Because if you're gonna have that power and we could do a whole nother hour on police reform, mm -hmm. because there's a three-part plan for police reform that some of us have been working on that is actual police reform, not we're gonna ban a chokehold or we're gonna ban the use of this weapon. That's nonsense. Mm -hmm. That's pretend police reform. Mm -hmm. Because if the people that are now told you can't use a chokehold are racists, guess what? They're still going to use a chokehold. And I'm reminded of that because if you, the same holds true for prosecutors. You want the power to imprison somebody? You better be the right kind of person. You better not have a prejudiced bone in your body. You want to be a police officer and put a badge on your chest and a gun on your hip and order me out of my car or order you out of your car? and order me on the ground, handcuff me, take me downtown, then you're gonna be the right kind of person. Mm -hmm. And if you have a racist bone in your body, you need not apply. And there are ways to do that in the hiring process, in the training and testing process, and in the accountability process when there is an excessive force allegation that can make huge strides in police reform. That's a discussion for another day, but... Um, finishing up with the answer to your question, try everything. Don't be afraid to fail. And don't worry if you bomb the LSATs. Um, and I won't say, think about other professions other than being lawyers, because there, there are so many lawyers, but I won't say, but I wouldn't say there are too many really good lawyers, mm -hmm. dedicated lawyers, whose hearts are in the right place. So that's why I keep telling people, if that's where your heart is, and you want to do right by everybody, fairly and honestly and honorably and decently and with empathy and be a lawyer. And it's so refreshing to hear that because Rain and I talk about all the time how daunting and intimidating the whole application process, the LSAT process. And I feel like there's this idea or we feel like it's kind of pushed on us to be perfect. Like mm -hmm. you have to go to a T14. If you're not, don't bother going to law school. Mm. And if your LSAT isn't this, don't bother going to law school. So hearing you say that is very like refreshing and it it's inspiring because I mean you have great experience and I mean your track record it speaks for itself so it's kind of like hearing you say that it's like okay I can do this like I got this and I'm sure a right. lot of people listening will feel that same way because there's so much of a stigma around the type of student you need to be in order to even get there in the first place mm -hmm. uh, the type of person you need to be I tell people especially when I talk to ex-offenders I got locked up as a kid Mm -hmm. That was for some dumb stuff, stealing signs off the boardwalk in, in New Jersey, not a big deal, but just stupid mm -hmm. stuff, right? But, you know, when I applied to the U.S. Attorney's Office, there's like, well, you know, what is this little thing that we came up with? And I said, that's me. I said, I'll tell you all about it. 
Had you asked about that on the application, I would have told you about it, but you didn't mm -hmm. because there are, you know, have you been arrested in the last 10 years? No. Have you ever been convicted of a crime? No. But, you know, when I was 18, I got arrested for some dumb stuff. I didn't get convicted because I made restitution and the, you know, the guy who ran the boardwalk said, do you want a summer job? I mean, so turned a bad situation into a good situation. But you know, do I have an arrest on my record? Yeah, I do. And that didn't stop me from being a career prosecutor any more than bombing the LSAT stopped me from going to a law school, New England law in Boston, which, you know, it's not a name school, but I got a great education, mm -hmm. frankly, better than had I gone to some of the Ivy Leagues. And let me just fit, let me circle back to this, because when I was interviewing people, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of applicants who wanted to be prosecutors at the U.S. Attorney's Office, I would have people strut in and say, well, I'm double Ivy. And I'm like, you're what? What is like poison Ivy? And what I don't, what are you double Ivy? Well, I went to Harvard and I went to Yale. And the first thing I would do is look at my watch, which I didn't wear. And like, okay, so here's 45 minutes of my life. I'm never going to get back. And, you know, yeah, you may be double Ivy, but you're not gonna walk into a DC courtroom and convince a jury that your name is Biff Trippington III, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You, you know, and then somebody would come in and say, well, you know, I didn't do great in law school. I put myself through law school at night because I worked two jobs. And I'm like, okay, now you're showing me something because you've worked and you've struggled and you've had to survive and you've succeeded and you're gonna probably be able to walk in and look at 12 people in the jury box from the high school dropout to the scientist and everybody in between and connect with them mm -hmm. in a way that Biff Trippington III from <laughs> Harvard is not. I'm really not bad mouthing the Ivy Leagues. That's not the point here, they're great schools. But that was my experience about the kind of real world people we need to stand in the nation's courts and mm. do justice fairly by everybody. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's like, kind of like what Tamia was saying, super refreshing. We actually had like many, many conversations with a lot of people who are in law school and out of law school. And, you know, you, you know, firsthand how the GW culture is. Everyone's like internship law school. I'm better than you. Like it's just, it can be like really toxic and make you look down on your accomplishments a lot. So it's really assuring to hear that, you know, I mean, obviously we see it firsthand that you can come from anywhere and like, we're both from Jersey. We're not from the gutters, but we're from Jersey. Yeah. And um, we um, definitely, it's just assuring to, to see somebody who has like, you know, same state and same type of career, like, you know, make it make it as as big as you are even though i i think you're be belittling your your major major accomplishments because you've inspired so many people um but i guess on like that note um thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us and we are so 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 grateful that you have been you know i'm grateful to have been your student and we're so grateful for you coming on and inspiring so many other people who have not had the privilege to have you as a teacher hopefully this will be a little bit of an insight of what um professor k's class is like um and with that being said i will be signing off yeah and All right. i'm signing off too thanks again so much for coming on and talking to us i no, I learned so much and it was refreshing to hear from you, you know, your different perspectives because you feel like, like Raina said, prosecutors aren't a monolith and usually people lump something together. So in debunk debunking those kind of like myths or those ideas was very refreshing to hear. So I greatly appreciate it. And this is Tamia signing off. All right. Great, great talking with y'all. Wait, morning. you have to say signing off. I have to say signing off? Yeah. All right. Well, then this is Glenn Kirshner. Professor at GW signing off. Yes. <laughs> okay. We'll see you guys in two weeks.